0: You are listening live to the latest edition of the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along Monday, October 7. A lot to get to today. We've got Major League Baseball playoffs, a couple of games this afternoon. One is already gone final, one in progress, and then a few that you're going to be able to hear tonight here on ESPN-UP. We've got the NFL to break down from yesterday. Plus, we look ahead to Monday night football this evening on ESPN-TV. But as always, let's start the week by recapping each every NFL game from Sunday, give you my thoughts on it. I tell you what, despite getting a quarterback rating of 102 yesterday from the greatest quarterback to ever walk this God-created earth, it wasn't enough for the Jacksonville Jaguars as they fall to Carolina 34-27. Garner Minshew, 26-44, of 44, 374 yards and two touchdowns. He was not intercepted. Leonard Fournette ran the ball well, 23 times for 108 yards and one TD. DJ Chark had a nice game, eight catches for 164 yards and two touchdowns. But on the other side, it was the Christian McCaffrey Show. He runs the ball 19 times for 176 yards, including two TDs. He caught the ball six times for 61 yards, including a receiving touchdown. They have enough to beat Jacksonville 34-27. Arizona tried to give away Cliff Kingsbury's first-ever NFL head coaching victory, but a late field goal by Zane Gonzalez saves the day. 26-23, Arizona wins over Cincinnati. Although Andy Dalton in that game, not too bad, 27-38 for two. 262 yards, and two TDs. Joe Mixon carried the ball 19 times for 93 yards, did not find the end zone, however. Taj Boyd had a big day, 10 catches for 123 yards, including one TD. On the other side for Arizona, Kyler Murray, 20-32, 253 yards, no TDs, no picks. He did have a long run that set up what would be the game-winning field goal from Gonzalez. That came after Cincinnati scored two touchdowns in the final four minutes to tie things up, but Gonzalez with the walk-off field goal saves the day. Or AZ. Houston, meanwhile, runs wild on Atlanta. Dan Quinn is so fired. I tell you what, Jay Gruden this morning, it's got to be Dan Quinn next. Matt Ryan was pretty good in that game, though. 32 of 46 for 330 yards and three TDs. He was picked once. Distributed the ball well. There were five players for Atlanta with five catches or more on the day. Houston was just flat out better though, and this is why Dan Quinn is going to get fired because he's a defensive coach, and your defense allows 53 points, albeit it's against a really good Houston team and a really good quarterback. Deshaun Watson, 28-33 for 426 yards, five TDs. He was not picked. Will Fuller, big game yesterday, 14 catches, 217 yards, and three TDs. Good thing I left him on my fantasy bench, and not one, but two leagues. Will Fuller V, how about it? New Orleans able to survive Tampa Bay 31-24. Tampa Bay may not be as bad as people thought. They're two and three. Keep in mind, they probably should be three and two had not Matt Gay missed a very makeable field goal. But New Orleans gets a big day from Teddy Bridgewater as they move to four and one. Bridgewater 26 of 34, 314 yards, four TDs. He was picked once. Alvin Kamara 16 carries for 62 yards. That's an okay day. But Michael Thomas had a huge day receiving the ball. 11 catches, 182 yards, and two TDs. I will say, though, Bruce Arians, he might have something of this quarterback whisperer title. Wasn't a terrible day for Jameis Winston. 15-27, 204 yards, two TDs. Not bad. Not bad against a really good Saints defense. Minnesota able to bounce back. They go into the meadowlands and take down the Giants 28-10. to Kirk Cousins looked like he was back on his game. 22-27, 306 yards, two TDs. He was not picked. Adam Thielen, seven catches for 130 yards, including two touchdowns. It's got to make him a lot more happy. Daniel Jones on the other side, he had an okay day. 21-38, 182 yards, one TD, one pick. Golden Tate, if you're wondering, three catches for 13 yards in his Giants debut. New York is now down to their third-string running back, Wayne Gallman, knocked out of yesterday's game with a concussion. Over in London, the Raiders tried to blow it against Chicago, but they hang on to win 24-21. How does this work? How does this NFL head to head thing work? It really doesn't. By no logic should Oakland have beat Chicago yesterday, but they got a good day from Derek Carr, twenty five of thirty two, two hundred twenty nine yards, and a big day for Josh Jacobs, one hundred twenty three yards and two TDs. Khalil Mack on the other side taking on his former team, three tackles yesterday. Oakland gets a win over Chicago. Each team is now three and two. The Eagles blow by the Jets thirty one to six. The Philadelphia defense was dominating. Carson went seven. 17 to 29 189 yards, one TD. Kind of a mixed bag for him. He had some good moments. He had some not-so-good moments. Luke Falk, though, really didn't have any good moments on the other side. 15-26, to 26, 120 yards, no TDs, two interceptions, including a pick six to start things off. Le'Veon Bell held below three yards per carry yesterday, Along of 13. Starting to think maybe taking that year off wasn't Such a great idea. He did have seven catches for 45 yards, though, so he was effective catching the ball out of the backfield. Baltimore goes to overtime against a third-string quarterback, but they hang on to beat the Steelers 26-23. Mason Rudolph was put in concussion protocol, although he did return home, spent the night there after leaving the hospital yesterday. So that left Pittsburgh turning to Devlin Hodges. Yeah, who? Had to look him up too. Turns out he's out of Sanford and it turns out he almost led his team to a comeback victory over Baltimore. He went seven to nine through the air for 68 yards, no TDs, no picks. James Conner, 14 carries, 55 yards, one TD. It's an okay day for him. Lamar Jackson on the other side doesn't seem to have the same magic since week two, 19 to 28, 161 yards, one TD, but he was picked three times, did run the ball 14 times for 70 yards though. I tell you what, continuing on from the NFL scoreboard yesterday, did anybody watch Buffalo at Tennessee? Had to be the least exciting game that was out there. 14-7 win for the Bills. Josh Allen threw a couple of touchdown passes to lead the offense. He was 23-32 on the day, was picked once, but he racked up 219 yards. He also ran the ball 10 times for 27 yards. Marcus Mariota, he put up kind of bland numbers. 13-22, 183 yards, no TDs, no picks. Derrick Henry was held below 4 yards per touch. I tell you what, they struggled in the first half, but the Patriots finally remembered they were the unbeaten team and Washington was a winless team as they cruised past the Redskins 33 to 7 in the second half. And that was the final nail in Jay Gruden's coffin. As was announced today, the Redskins have fired Gruden after six seasons. Bill Callahan, who coached against Gruden's brother in a Super Bowl way back when, will take over as interim head coach. Tom Brady, 28 of 42, 348 yards, three TDs, and one interception. Sony Michelle carried the ball for about 5.7 yards per tote, including a touchdown. Big day for Julian Edelman, eight catches, 110 yards, and one TD. On the other side for Washington, Colt McCoy had his first start of the year, 18-27, 119 yards, no TDs, and one pick. And at this point, Dwayne Haskins probably should just start the Miami game next week. Which, by the way, is anybody going to be watching that? I know I will because I just want to see how big of a debacle it really is. I've got some more thoughts on the Jay Gruden firing. and. Why, that won't solve anything over in Washington. But first, let's continue on through the NFL scoreboard yesterday. Denver, 20-13 to winners over the Chargers. L.A. just doesn't have the same magic that they did last season. I don't know what's going on with them. They have Melvin Gordon back, and yet Denver gets their first victory of the season. They do so with Joe Flacco going 14-20 for 182 yards, one TD, and one pick. Philip Lindsay a great day rushing the football, 15 carries, 114 yards, and one TD. On the other side, Phillip Rivers, 32 for 48, 211 yards, no touchdowns. He was picked twice. Melvin Gordon held to 2.6 yards per carry, no touchdowns. Just not a lot going for LA yesterday. Green Bay dominates the Cowboys 34-24. There might be something to that Green Bay run defense. They were able to effectively shut down the Cowboys and Ezekiel Elliott yesterday. Zeke with an okay game, 12 touches for 62 yards and a touchdown, but still not enough to be where they need him to be to win. Dak Prescott, 27-44 through the year for 463 yards, two TDs, body was picked three times, and Amari Cooper had a big day with 11 catches, 226 yards, one TD. I tell you what, Prescott did put up 463 yards, but he didn't do it in impressive fashion. He very well could have been picked off five times in that game. He's very fortunate that it was only three, albeit that still wasn't enough to keep them in that game. I know they put up 24 points against Green Bay, but it was 31-10 to going into the fourth quarter. It really was not a game from very early on. On the Green Bay side of things, Aaron Rodgers was 22 of 34, 238 yards, no TDs, no picks. He had a good game. He always likes playing at AT&T Stadium. He's 4-0 there, including his only Super Bowl championship. But it might have been the Aaron Jones show if we were talking about any Aaron on Green Bay's roster having a big day yesterday. 19 touches for 107 yards and four TDs as he comes back to his home state and he dominates the Dallas Cowboys. Now we have a few personalities here at ESPN Radio that are very much invested in how the Dallas Cowboys do. And we have audio from both of them because they're on very opposite ends of the spectrum. We have Stephen A. Smith, who is just overjoyed whenever the Cowboys lose. And then we have Will Kane, who is crushed, heartbroken, his soul ripped out whenever the Cowboys lose. Will is still clinging to hope that Dak Prescott is not only a franchise quarterback, but that he is an elite quarterback. This is what he put out on Facebook after the game last night.
1: I'm not going to lie. I'm concerned about this team. I'm concerned that the minute the Dallas Cowboys go up against something more than horrendous competition, they haven't looked good. I'm concerned about the penalties. I'm concerned about the turnovers. I'm concerned that supposed strengths like the defense and the offensive line are just... Absolutely getting shoved around. But one thing I'm not concerned about is Dak Prescott. I know y'all are jumping off the bandwagon. I've seen it. He's mediocre. We told you Will. He's a game manager. He's average. Give him 40 million, please. Signed NFC East. Let me tell you something. You're off the bandwagon? Cool. Just don't come back. Don't come back when he wins. Don't come back when they go to the playoffs. Don't come back when he's clearly one of the top quarterbacks in the league. And don't come back when Dak Prescott wins a Super Bowl. That's my quarterback.
0: That's my quarterback. You can have him, Will. I love you. I love your show. And I give you credit for sticking to your guns. But Dak Prescott is not the hill that you want to die on. Even Kellen Moore is not able to elevate Dak Prescott's game beyond anything more than mediocre competition. They look good the first three weeks playing the Giants, Redskins, and Dolphins. Almost everybody has playing those teams. Teams with a combined record of 2-12 and 12 to start the season. The last two weeks, the Cowboys opponents have a combined record of 8-2, and two, and the Cowboys have looked like a much different team. Not all that is just the rise in competition. But some of that has to be attributed to coaches getting film on Kellen Moore and what he likes to scheme. Just like you can get film on a player you don't know much about, you can do so with a coach, with an offensive coordinator. You can see his tendencies, you can see his schemes, and that's exactly what Sean Payton and Matt LaFleur did these last two weeks. I give you credit, Will. You're sticking to your guns. I respect that. But I'm not with you on that. As a media professional, I'm not with you on Dak Prescott. I don't think he's a Super Bowl quarterback. They might be a playoff team this year, but they're not gonna do much more than that. But you know who loves what happened to the Cowboys last night was Will's colleague on first take. He's on here one to three every afternoon, Stephen A. Smith. He had some wonderful audio for us last week. He didn't disappoint this week either. a little bit under the weather but i must say i just saw that miss field go with a little over a minute and 40 seconds left and those cowboys those cowboys it's not gonna work (laughs) i mean Dak struggling throwing interceptions i mean you know, can't make field goals. Jason Garrett losing his composure, showing they got a little attitude. You the cowboy fans out there, you watched your team, didn't you? You watched them giving that good fight. You watched them come on back. They teased you, didn't they? They had you believing that somehow, some way, it gonna come back from this. Well, guess what? I reckon you were wrong. I reckon you were wrong. Not gonna happen. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <It's> beautiful. <laughs> hey, how about the cowboy?
0: <laughs> I think Stephen A might do a better joker than Joaquin Phoenix. But I tell you what, the Cowboys lose last night. They fall back into a tie with Philadelphia for first in that division. The Giants are now 2-3, and one game back. And then you have Washington sitting 0-5, and and they will be looking for a new head coach. I tell you what, it's not going to get any better. It's not going to get any better as long as Dan Snyder is the owner of that team. He is the new James Dolan. We can do that, right? We can compare him to James Dolan, owner of the New York Knicks. The franchise just won't get any better under him. You think about some of the coaches that have gone through D.C. while Snyder's been the owner. Joe Gibbs, Mike Shanahan. No coach has ever finished his time with the Redskins with a winning record while Dan Snyder is the owner. The problem goes well beyond the coaching staff. It goes to the highest levels of management, and until that gets fixed, nothing will work in D.C., Last game to break down from last night, Indianapolis goes into KC and shocks the world by beating the Chiefs 19-13. Pat Mahomes, 22-39, 321 yards, 1 TD. He was not picked, but 13 points is the lowest that the Chiefs have ever put up in a game that he started. I tell you what, I don't want to take anything away from Indianapolis, what they did, especially coming off that loss to Oakland. I know Mahomes was dealing with an ankle injury. I don't believe that was it, though. I don't believe that was the key to last night's game. And to me, the blame for that loss falls on Andy Reid, because the play calling was not good last night. Darius Leonard, star linebacker, was out of the game for Indianapolis. They still decided to play man coverage. That's where a tight end feast, when a team is playing man, especially with one of their best linebackers out. Kansas City has arguably the best tight end in the game with Travis Kelsey. And they didn't use him nearly enough. He had four catches for 70 yards, no TDs. He should have gone to work last night. He should have had a career night. I don't know why they didn't target him more. That was a missed opportunity for KC. That one falls in the play calling. That one's on Andy Reid. Now, I don't criticize Andy Reid very much. I think he's a Hall of Fame head coach. But last night was one of the more unimpressive games that he's called in a long time. Tonight we'll close out week five with Monday Night Football here on ESPN-TV. It's an eight fifteen kick as Jimmy Garoppolo and the 49ers welcome Baker, Mayfield, and the Browns. Jimmy G, can him and the Niners remain the last unbeaten team in the NFC, one of two teams in the NFL? Will Baker Mayfield and the Browns get it clicking this evening? Find out tonight, eight fifteen, kick on ESPN TV. Joe Testor, Booger McFarlane with the call. Let's take a timeout because we got baseball to talk to. We'll get to that next because... I tell you what, this is a big night for me and my twins. Talk about it next on ESPN-UP.
1: Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app.
0: Welcome back to The Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad that you're along this Tuesday afternoon. I tell you what, we got some baseball to talk about, but I was checking Twitter during the break, and I give the Colts some credit because we were just talking about them before we went to the commercial and the Colts had a really nice troll job for the Sunday Night Football telecast after all of them unanimously picked against the Colts to lose last night. So the Colts with a good troll job, that made me think, I'm glad they haven't taken a look at our Pick'em League and our Pick'em Standings, our Friends of the Show League here on ESPN-UP. Let me update you on those. I went into the weekend in first place. I'm still there, albeit by one game. I'm at 15-9. and I picked Seattle and Baltimore, which were correct. Dallas and Kansas City, which were incorrect. You have Ryan Steig and Jake Duran, each at 14-10. and 10. Tyree Smith is 13-11. John Michael Hoefling, 11-13. and 13. So all of us are right there. We're literally separated by four games from the top to the bottom. So we got some baseball to talk about. And I'm going to keep putting it off here a little bit. I don't mean to do this, but I just keep seeing stuff popping up here. This is an interesting story out of New England. Just broke a couple of minutes ago. Ben Watson, talented tight end, used to be with the New Orleans Saints was not activated by the Patriots today. Today was the deadline to do so. He was suspended the first portion of the season, first four games I think it was, Then they had one extra week to see if they wanted to activate him or not. They chose not to, which means that he is officially a free agent. So Ben Watson is out there in the waiver wire. If you're looking at a tight end, maybe your team is. Ben Watson says he doesn't plan on retiring. He wants to play somewhere else. Do I have to Do I have to go to baseball yet, or can I stick with this? Because this is something that was really cool, and I probably should have plugged earlier, but as a true professional journalist, this is the way I'm doing it. The XFL announced earlier today that they will hold their first annual of the reboot, I guess, second annual ever, if you want to count the one that happened way back when, 20 years ago. First annual of the reboot, XFL draft coming up next week. And the rules for this are fascinating. In case you missed this, what they did is they took several players that are unsigned with any professional organization, they did a routine background check, they cleared them, and they announced that player pool today. And they've got a lot of former college stars that didn't make it in the NFL, guys like uh, Connor Cook, quarterback at Michigan State, Berkeley Edwards, a former Michigan running back. So they're all part of this draft pool. So what they're going to have the chance to do is a weird, quirky draft But I kind of like it. Like, I wouldn't like it if the NFL did it. But I'm okay with the XFL doing it. Because, you know, it's something different. It's kind of cool. And I'd like to see how it's tried out. But this is how they're doing it. Instead of having one big draft with the entire talent pool up for grabs, what they're going to do is split the draft into five phases. And they're going to draft in each phase by position. So phase one will be skill positions where you can draft your quarterback, your running back, your fullback, your wide receiver, your tight ends, and so forth. You can only get those positions in phase one of the draft. And then phase two, it's an entirely different position group. Offensive line. Phase three, your defensive front seven. So your linebackers and your linemen. Phase four, your defensive backfield. So your corners and your safeties. And then phase five will be... An open draft. So that's anybody who's left on the table, regardless of position, they are up for grabs at that time. And what's weird is that they have different order, different position order for each phase of the draft. So the team that's drafting first overall in the first phase could be sixth overall in phase two or third overall in phase three. The routine and the rotation was designed by Andrew Andrew Luck. How about Andrew's father, Oliver Luck, the commissioner of this league? And if you want to throw in a little fantasy football element to it, it's a snake draft. So let me give you an example. Phase one is the skills position. So that's where you're going to get your quarterback, your running back, your wideouts tied in, and so forth. You get your skill position, guys, and you're allowed to get 10 guys until you have that roster full. So the draft order is D.C. They'll have the first overall pick when it comes to those positions, followed by Houston, New York, Dallas, Tampa Bay, St. Louis, Seattle, and L.A., which means for the ninth overall pick, L.A.'s going to get that. And the order reverses itself and goes to Seattle, St. Louis, Tampa Bay, Dallas, New York, Houston, and winds its way all the way back to D.C., and then it goes back to D.C. Just like fantasy football. If you're a fantasy football owner, you know about this style. That is what's going to happen next week, and I tell you what, again, I would hate it if the NFL did it, because I'm a traditionalist, but sometimes I like seeing new, cool, innovative ideas, and I think that's what we have here. I can't wait for it, you guys. I'm excited for it. It's going to be streamed over the internet in Stanford, Connecticut. I don't know why they're having it there. I did not look that far. I'm excited for the XFL, everybody. I'm going to be tuned in. I know there's a better version of football in the NFL. I know the whole argument against it. I'm excited for this, though. I really am. And I think they have a legit shot at making it work. Let's go to some baseball, because I did promise that we have four games today. All of them are either in progress, or they're still waiting to throw the first pitch. Nobody's gone final yet. We started playing baseball this afternoon at 105, so I've been following baseball for almost half the day now. You have four teams who could all see their seasons end today on their home field. All four series could end today, although it doesn't look like that'll be the case. You have Tampa Bay on top, 10-3 over Houston. That game's in the middle of the eighth inning. Houston needs a win to close that series. Tampa Bay is going to have to win three in a row to move on to the ALCS. They're off to a good start. They shellacked Zach Grinke today. Oh, and I tell you what, that's going to sound so good when you hear my stat of the day. I have that coming up in segment three. But Tampa Bay looks like they're going to force a game four tomorrow in Tampa, which means they're going to see Justin Verlander. Maybe he's just playing at the Tro, but I hate that place and just hate that place. Tampa Bay though is up ten to three, and it looks like they're going to beat Houston and force a winner-take-all game for tomorrow. Elsewhere, St. Louis is on top of Atlanta three to one. That game's in the home fourth. Braves lead that series two games to one. If St. Louis wins, they will force a winner-take-all game five in Atlanta. On Wednesday, we are going to join that game in progress when we sign off here on ESPN-UP. We'll get you out to Bush Stadium and join that game in progress. Then we'll have a few podcasts. We'll have Pod Center leading up to the Dodgers Nationals tonight at 640. Dodgers seem like they took command of the series last night. I wouldn't be shocked if last night's sixth inning was the turning point for that series. Because Patrick Corbin, who had been so good for Washington during their run, was just shellacked didn't make it through that inning it was a rare relief appearance and I think people underestimate how tough it is on starting pitchers to come in relief roles in the postseason you got to start getting them to do that around late September when you know you're going to be a playoff team some teams don't have that luxury some teams are playing up to the final day and Patrick Corbin was not ready for it last night he gave up seven runs in the sixth inning all with two outs last night so the Dodgers win 10-4 last night as they take a 2-1 series lead. First pitch tonight is set for 640. You have Rich Hill going for the Dodgers against Max Scherzer, who's won 11 games for Washington this year. He looked really good against DC, excuse me, against LA the other night. Washington's going to need something like that again to get them on to a winner-take-all game five at Chavez Ravine. That would be Wednesday night. Twins and Yankees set for an 840 first pitch tonight. You have Jake Odorizzi going up against Luis Severino. Last time the Twins saw Severino in the postseason, they're really good against him. Seve didn't make it through the first inning. The Twins went up 3-0. Went on to lose that game in Twins postseason fashion. I tell you what, it's been a magical run for us as fans this year. But 15 straight losses in the postseason, a standalone Major League record they got to win tonight to avoid getting swept. I don't think they've avoided a sweep in a playoff series since 2004, I think it is. I need to double-check that. I try to stay away from stats like that. Even though I'm a media professional, I should know that before I go on air. It hurts. (laughs) It hurts. And I I try to stay away from that kind of negativity. But I tell you what, earlier today I was out getting lunch. I was at one of my favorite places getting a sandwich. And the guy at the counter sees me wearing my red Twins jersey and says, you from Minnesota? I said, no, I'm from Iowa. Close enough. He's like, okay, they're in trouble. <laughs> I'm like, same story, uh, different year. Because the Twins postseason struggles have gone on since I've been a boy. I tell you what, though, I'm happy with this season. It could end tonight, and I'm happy with this season and the direction that the team is going. Next year is where it culminates. Next year is where the pressure is on to win it. Because four-year-five starting pitchers will be up for new contracts. Nelson Cruz isn't getting any younger. He says he does want to come back next year. He wants the Twins to pick up his option, which they can do. They've got something special cooking there. So I would feel a lot worse if we were a year removed from now and the Twin season came to an end. Because I believe that's where their window of opportunity, if this team has a shot at a World Series run, I believe that is where it goes. This year's been fun. And I hope they do some tonight. I really do. I'll be flipping between that one and Monday Night Football. I think that one's going to be a fun one as well. By the way, we're going to have that game on ESPN-UP as well. I don't know if I mentioned that earlier, but we're going to have every game the rest of the day here on ESPN-UP. We will, again, join in progress the Braves and Cardinals. We will get you out to Dodgers Nationals after Pod Center, and then a few more podcasts to lead up to the Twins-Yankees at Target Field, Dan Schulman is going to be on the call with Chris Singleton for that one. I tell you what, if we have ALDS game fours tomorrow, it looks like we're going to have at least one if Tampa Bay holds on, then we will have those for you here in ESPN-UP. The schedule is to be determined. We'll make sure you get that information somehow, but be sure to stay tuned to ESPN-UP and check our social medias. We'll be updating that to let you know about our baseball broadcast schedule coming up throughout the course of the next few days. But I tell you what, before we hit the break, because we're coming up on it here in just a moment, hit the bottom of the hour, I want to give you this, because this came out earlier today. We had technically week one, it's kind of like week zero of the NCAA hockey season. I didn't like it because only like six teams played across the country. Michigan Tech did, and they had a really good weekend. Alex Bretzman got named player of the week. He had a monster of a weekend. But I don't like it that it affects the rankings when you only have a few teams playing. Because the rankings move, and I've never understood why. You see, like, three different teams in the top ten were idle this weekend, and then they move up. I saw a team that went 1-0. and They only had one game this weekend. Might have been Denver. I think Denver went 2-0. and I don't remember who it was. I'll double check. But they moved down despite going undefeated this weekend. A team that was idle this weekend surpassed them. That happened last year in Northern Michigan. Northern was ranked 20th to start the season. Didn't play in week one. And then they got passed over by somebody else who was... I don't get that. Like, who's making these rankings and who determines that? Either way, this is what the official ranking looks like, at least for the top 10 going into this week. Minnesota, Duluth still on top. I would hope so. They didn't play. Denver, despite being 2-0... and is not moving from their number two spot. They're sticking right at number two. Minnesota State is third. Then you've got UMass at number four. Cornell is fifth. Providence, sixth. St. Cloud, Notre Dame, Quinnipiac, and Boston College all round out the top ten. Not a lot of movers in the top ten, but still, why are there movers at all? Why are we counting this as a full week of college hike? Wait to Wait to get rankings at least a couple of weeks into the season, to get real rankings. If we're just going to base everything off last year's success, what's the point? Northern Michigan, I tell you what, though, they did go down to Plymouth and they had their exhibition with the U.S. National Development Team. They looked really good that night, I tell you what. And I'm excited to talk with Grant. We'll have, uh, we'll have audio from his presser tomorrow, and we'll get his thoughts on the goalie situation and what the lineup can look like this weekend when Sparty comes to town. All that and more is going to be coming up on tomorrow's show. Plus, we got baseball and all the audio, everything that comes with it. Our PD Gym doesn't like this time of the year it's stressful for him i get that i love this time of the year i love this time of the year. i might feel differently if i was having a program all the logs everything that goes into it do jim's job for him but i love this time of the year baseball postseason is here ladies and gentlemen and i'm here for it and we're here for it here in espn up let's take another time out as we hit the halfway mark in the show we'll come back There's some good stuff here coming up, plus a good stat of the day you're not going to want to miss. Next on ESPN-UP.
1: Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app.
0: Welcome back to The Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you, glad you're with us. Here's your Sports Center update. The Houston Rockets will not discipline General Manager Daryl Morey over a now-deleted tweet criticizing the Chinese government for their handling of the Hong Kong protests. The Pittsburgh Penguins announced that centerman Evgeny Malkin and Nick Bugstad both have suffered long-term lower body injuries. And finally, today is the 103rd anniversary of the most lopsided game in college football history. 103 years ago today, on October 7th, 1916, Georgia Tech under the leadership of coach John Heisman, yeah, they named the trophy after him, defeated Cumberland 222 to nothing. GT at that time, their nickname was the Gold Tornado, which I actually like better than the Yellow Jacket. They should have kept that. 222 to nothing. Georgia Tech beat Cumberland, who's now at NAI school, on this day in 1916. Total numbers in that game, Georgia Tech did it with 970 yards rushing and zero pass attempts. It's like the anti-Mike Leach. 978 yards of total offense for GT in that game. All came on the ground. Cumberland, meanwhile, finished with negative 28 yards of total offense. They were 2 of 18 through the air for 14 yards, but through six interceptions, and they were held at negative 42 rushing yards. Turnovers in that game, 15 for Cumberland, none for the Gold Tornado, who, by the way, scored 32 rushing touchdowns in that game. That is your SportsCenter update. It's not quite your stat of the day, although that's a pretty good one. Here is your stat of the day. We were talking baseball in the last segment. The Rays and the Astros going on right now. Zach Grinke, the starting pitcher for Houston today. If you took all nine salaries of the starting nine in the Rays batting order today, it would not come close to matching the annual salary that the opposing pitcher, Zach Grinke, turns in per year. Out of that Rays batting lineup, Kevin Kiermeyer commands $8 million a season. That's the most of anybody. Then you've got Tommy Pham, $4.1 million a year. Avisel Garcia, $3.5 million a year. Travis Darnot, $3.5 million a year. Brandon Lau, $1 million. Then you've got Yandi Diaz, 558000 Willie Adamas, $562,000. g man Choi, 850000 And Austin Meadows, 557000 In total, the starting nine in the Rays batting lineup today commands $22.6 million a year. Zach Grinky. Earns thirty one point five million dollars a year. Thirty one point five compared to twenty two point six. Zach Grinke out earns the entire Rays starting lineup he's pitching to today by about nine million dollars a year. That is your stat of the day. That's a good one. I tell you what, it shows you that that Rays team, as poorly bankrolled as they are, what they've been able to do has been nothing short of amazing. What they put together, not just this year. The last few years, they've won 90 games each of the last two years, and they did so by slashing 16 million dollars from their annual budget. I give that team credit. If the Twins weren't in, I'd be a Rays guy. I tell you what, I want to get on to some possible coaching hires, some probabilities even for the Washington Redskins, and we're going to do that here in a moment. But first, I want to touch on something else in that update, and it's not my beloved Pittsburgh Penguins. How? They're made of glass, basically. Evgeny Malkin's out. He was the only one that really seemed like he was there to play opening night. Now, what I want to talk about for the next few minutes is what happened with Daryl Morey, general manager of the Houston Rockets. If you don't know this story, on Friday, Morey tweeted from his personal account, not in affiliation with the team whatsoever. He sent out a tweet condemning the Chinese Communist Party, which is the governing body of China, and their handling of the Hong Kong protests. Well, his team, the Rockets, are very popular in China, or they were, I should say, because now fans in China are turning on the Rockets, and they're popular there because they play exhibitions there, Yao Ming is still a hero to the Chinese people, he played all nine NBA seasons with Houston, but now Chinese basketball fans are turning on the Rockets and Daryl Morey, the NBA released a tweet distancing itself from Morey, condemning Morey's tweets. The Rockets themselves wouldn't condemn what Maury said, but they did distance themselves. Maury, I tell you what, is one heck of an executive. He does a really good job as a general manager. He consistently puts together good teams out in Houston. Now here's the thing with social media. It can be a blessing and a curse. We just saw what happened in Iowa a few weeks ago. The young man who was on this show, Carson King, raised all that money to donate to sick children at a children's hospital in Iowa City. He did a lot of that through social media, only for that to end up being his downfall because a reporter went back and found tweets that were eight years old from when Carson King was 16, and they were quoting a racially charged television segment, Tosh.0, and they dug those up and used it to ruin Carson King's reputation, so he built up a reputation as somebody who was going out of his way to help sick kids, only to have his reputation smeared by something he said eight years ago when he was 16 years old. In the same way, Twitter can be used for so many good things. All of social media can. And Daryl Morey, when he's not in the office, he's a human being just like any of us. And he has a right to his own opinions. I don't have the same opinions as my coworkers here. Nor should you see anything that's on my Twitter and think that that is endorsed by ESPN-UP. I know sometimes it is, living in the real world it is, but let's say I retweet the Minnesota Twins. That doesn't mean that ESPNUP is the Minnesota Twins flagship or in any affiliation with them. I know that's the way it should work. That's what logic says. We're not always a logical breed of people. And I tell you what, the NBA, the Houston Rockets all quickly wanted to distance themselves from Maury. The NBA has a good fan base in China. They have business interests over there. And I tell you what, I couldn't be more disappointed with how the NBA handled it. Because the NBA, in pursuit of money, and in pursuit of business opportunities, are turning a blind eye to what's happening in Hong Kong. The NBA is a microcosm ...of what big business and Western society is all too often. And that is something that will turn a blind eye to human rights issues for the right price. Daryl Morey, in no association with the Rockets, decided to make his feelings on an issue that I give him a lot of credit for, for bringing up. And I think we should be talking about more. But because of who he was, his job title, the team had to suffer for it. I'm disappointed with the NBA... I'm disappointed we don't have more people that are paying attention to what's going on in Hong Kong. It's one of those things that makes you doubt humanity a little bit. That we have some people that are willing to put human rights up for sale. How dare we? How dare we? I could do a whole segment on that. I really could. But I've still got more that I want to get to today. And I'm starting to run up against the clock a little bit. So let's put a pin in that. And let's go to some possible coaching candidates for the Washington Redskins. I saw a list put out there today that had several candidates listed, including Mike Tomlin, who was at the forefront of that list. Mike Tomlin, if the Steelers don't bring him back, which I would honestly be surprised if they do, Mike Tomlin is going to be the most popular head coaching candidate out on the market this year. Kevin O'Connell, current offensive coordinator, that'll be another name that gets thrown around. Could we see somebody who's had a shot as a head coach somewhere get a shot again? Todd Bowles, he's doing a good job with the Tampa Bay defense. How about Rex Ryan? What's he doing nowadays? And do we think Jeff Fisher could have one last run in him? I don't think it'd be a good hire, but you've got to believe Jeff Fisher's got another shot somewhere, doesn't he? If he wants it, he's got enough friends, he can get one. The only question is, does he want it? And then, of course, you have a rising star over in Kansas City with their offensive coordinator, Eric Bieniemy, a guy from the Andy Reid coaching tree. What if Washington had the right guy on the staff all along and they let him slip away because they believed in the name Gruden because Jay Gruden was living on John's coattails. He had that last name, and when you have that cut kind of power, your blinders come on you turn your blinders on to anybody else around him if you believe that's the guy that makes it all go. But maybe it was the assistants on that staff that were the real treasure. Because at one point on this Washington Redskin organization, with Daniel Snyder as the owner and Jay Gruden as head coach, the coaching staff included assistant Sean McVay, who's just coming off a of Super Bowl, Matt LaFleur, who's off to a 4-1 and start with Green Bay, and Kyle Shanahan, who's off to a 4-0 and start with San Francisco. All three of those guys were assistant coaches on Jay Gruden's staff at one time. In that front office, that ownership, said Jay Gruden's a guy. We don't want these guys. They're good assistants. They're not going to pan out in the NFL as head coaches, but Jay Gruden is our guy. This is why things aren't going to get better in Washington with Daniel Snyder as the team owner. There was a report going around that they informed Jay Gruden last night that he needed to be at the Redskins team facilities in D.C. by 5 a.m. this morning. And upon arrival, there was a short conversation, and they fired him. They brought him in at 5 a.m. just to fire him. This comes off a 33-7 loss to New England yesterday. Let's be honest, Jay Gruden didn't lose his job because his team lost to the Patriots. This was something that was brewing And it was going to happen. Maybe doing it Monday at 5 a.m. was a little surprising. But that's the pettiness. That's the burning bridges aspect of things. That makes Daniel Snyder such a bad owner. Sticks the knife in there and twists it a little bit. Daniel Snyder is the James Dolan of the NFL. And the Redskins will not get better under his watch. There are not better times ahead for Washington football under his watch. And it goes well beyond the quarterback situation. Which, by the way, they're 1-11 since Alex Smith went down with that gruesome injury last year. You think if that didn't happen, would Jay Gruden still have his job? And he probably would. But for how much longer? Because I believe that was inevitable. Jay Gruden getting fired was inevitable. The problem with the Redskins continues to be the ownership. You look at cases like Trent Williams and the holdout situation. The potential malpractice of the team doctors. The problem with the Redskins goes well beyond whoever's coaching them next year. Things aren't getting better in D.C. until the Daniel Snyder ownership era is over. Let's take our last time out when we come back. We'll end Monday the way we always do. We'll play over-under with the College Football Top 25. That's coming up next on ESPN-UP.
1: Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at four on ESPN UP and on the ESPN UP app.
0: If you missed any of today's show, get caught up on demand. Get our free mobile app in the Apple I Store, Google Play, or look up ESPNUP.com. Programming note for you. Once we sign off here, we will get you out to St. Louis Bush Stadium for game four of the NLDS Atlanta at St. Louis. We'll join them in progress as the 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 Braves try to close out that series. The Cards looking for a winner-take-all Game 5 in Atlanta. Then we'll have a pod center leading up to the Dodgers at Nationals. 6.40 start for that Game 4. Dodgers lead that series two games to one. Then a few more hours of podcasts. And then the Twins and Yankees can be heard here on ESPN-UP tonight at 8.40. New York trying to close out that series in Minneapolis. They lead it two games to nothing. That's your programming note. Again, we are over to Bush Stadium once we sign off here. And we'll join them in progress. But for now, let's end Monday's show the way we always end Monday's shows, and that's playing over-under with the top 25 in college football. And we start with Miami at home, favored by two points over Virginia. I'm going with the upset in this one because I don't think it should be an upset. Virginia's impressed me this year. Miami has not. Virginia's quarterback, Perkins, that kid's got an arm. He throws the ball well. He's got precision. His accuracy needs a little work. But Miami is just underwhelmed in the big game. Virginia has not so far this year. I'm taking Virginia with the upset, even though I don't think that should be an upset. You've got Oregon, 21-point favorites, at home against Colorado. I'll take the over on that one as well. Oregon's coming off a nice win over Cal this weekend. Colorado's not done a whole lot to impress me. Their best win is, what, Nebraska? No, Arizona State. You can throw Arizona State in there. But still, they haven't done a whole lot that's impressive. This game being in Eugene, I'm taking Justin Herbert over this Colorado defense. Michigan on the road at Illinois. Wolverines favored by 20. I'm going to take the over on this one because Jim Harbaugh just needs it. A couple of weeks ago when Michigan got blown out by Wisconsin, they knew that they had to make a statement against Rutgers. They did, 52-0. And then a very uninspiring win this weekend against Iowa, 10-3. So basically, Harbaugh's back where he started a couple of weeks ago, coming off the Wisconsin loss. He needs to thump Illinois. He needs to go there and make a statement, and his seat is going to get really hot. If Lovey Smith and the Fighting Illini get within the 20-point spread, I don't think 20 is enough. I think Michigan's really got to pour it on on Illinois this weekend. So I'm going to take the over, because I think Harbaugh and the guys are going to get up to do it. You've got Wake Forest favored by 7 at home against Louisville. I'll take the over on this one. might surprise you to know that Wake Forest is having a really good fall sports schedule. Not just football where they're undefeated, but soccer, volleyball, cross country. Wake Forest has quietly put together a really good fall sports season. Louisville's gotten better, but Wake Forest has gotten better, maybe even more quietly so. They've flown under the radar. I think i go with the over on this one, although I do like the 7-point spread where it is right now. I'd probably set about 10. I have Wake... Let's say by 10 at home this weekend over Louisville. The Red River shootout. You've got Oklahoma on the road taking on Texas. The Sooners favored by 10. I'm going to go slightly with the under on this one. And this is my logic being the game is in Texas. Texas always gets up for this one. They played LSU to seven points. LSU is quarterbacked by one of the two Heisman front runners right now. And again, Texas got within seven points in that game. They are going to play the other Heisman frontrunner this weekend, Jalen Hurts in Oklahoma. I see Oklahoma winning this one, but maybe by seven, something like that, at UT. Memphis at Temple. Memphis favored by five. Does it surprise you that's a top 25 game? I tell you what, I want to pick Temple in this one. I really do. It's at Temple. I really want to say the Owls are going to win it. I don't have anything to base that off, though. It's just a feeling. Can I do that? Can I, can I go with my heart if it's not my team? I don't know why I have a thing for Temple this week. I just think Temple is going to surprise people this weekend against Memphis. I'm going to do it. I'm going to go with the Owls. There's nothing on paper that says I should. I'm just going to say Temple gets the upset. Boise State at home. They are 14-point favorites against Hawaii. I'm going to take the over on that. Boise State has surprised people this year, maybe surpassed some expectations, Hawaii just has not. Boise at home, yeah, by two touchdowns plus. Arizona State at home taking on Washington State. The Sun Devils are favored by a field goal. I'm going to take the over on that one as well. Wazoo, they can put up points with the best of them, but defensively they haven't looked good the last two, three weeks, something like that. Arizona State is starting to come into their own. I like the Sun Devils in this one. I think they're going to cover the three-point spread. Utah on the road at Oregon State. The Utes favored by 14. I'm going to go with the Utes to cover the spread in this one. I think... 17? How about that? 17 should sound about right for a victory in Corvallis. Georgia at home this weekend. 25-point favorites at home against South Carolina. I'll take the over on that. Give me five Jake Fromm touchdowns this weekend. Cincinnati coming off a big win over UCF and an excellent troll job, I must say, Friday night. They go on the road to take on Houston. Since he is favored by five, I'm going to go with the under on it. I think since he is going to win, but what they did on Friday night... I don't know if they can repeat that and do it on the road. And I know that it's Houston as compared to UCF, the fighting Case Keenum's this weekend instead of the fighting Blake Bortles's. I don't know how he's going to bounce back after a high emotional win. Maybe they won't cover the spread, but I still think they win. You've got Wisconsin favored by 10. They're at home against Sparty. I am going to go with, oh boy, this is tough. Because Michigan State's run defense is so good. And Jonathan Taylor is so good. And the thing is, Sparty's offense is getting there, but Wisconsin's still got a pretty good defense, and Wisconsin controls a line of scrimmage better than any team that Michigan State has seen so far this year. It's in Madison, so I'm going to say Wisconsin covers a 10-point spread. I might even pick the over on this. Wisconsin, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm not confident in it, but I'm going to do it because that run defense, Michigan State has something special, and they very well could prove me wrong. LSU... 14-point favorites against Florida. I tell you what, I wasn't upset to see Florida beat Auburn this weekend. I was wrong in my pick. I thought Auburn was going to win. I thought Florida would get exposed as a pretender. But you know what? I'm still confident that Florida is going to be exposed at some point this year. I'm not confident Florida is going to be there as a top-10 team later on this season. And this might very well be the weekend that they get exposed. I'm taking LSU I'm going over on LSU as 14-point favorites over Florida. Again, good win. Give them a ton of credit for what they did against Auburn. But I still don't see them being for real. I still see them as U-Fraud rather than U-Florida. You've got Alabama, 19-point favorites on the road with Texas A&M. I'll take the over on it. Beginning of the year, I would have said no. But A&M has really just been disappointing this year. They've really disappointed me. I thought they'd be one of the more improved teams in college football this year. Alabama just looks angry. Alabama, so far, to me, deserves to be the top-ranked team in the country, and I believe they're going to go into Aggieland and come away with a decisive victory. They are going to cover the 19-point spread and then some. Notre Dame at home, 12-point favorites against USC. I picked the spread over the Irish the last couple of games that I shouldn't have, New Mexico and Bowling Green, this is an Irish team that was 0-3 against massive spreads, like 30-point or more spreads for the last 15 years. And so far this year, they're 2-0 and in such games. And this, of course, isn't a massive 30-point spread. This is only 12. But they're going up against a third-string quarterback at home. It's USC week. The last time USC came to Notre Dame, they had Sam Darnold, a significantly better quarterback than whoever's going to start for USC this weekend, and they got blown out. The Irish won that game 49-14. I'm taking the over on this one. I think Notre Dame wins by more than 12 this weekend, and I'm just going to revel in it. Tell you what, we can make that a poll question. Should I mic myself up and use that audio next week in the sports pen? Notre Dame USC audio. Mic myself up while watching that game. You've got Clemson at home against Florida State. I'm going to take the over no matter what the spread is. Before I even give you the spread number, I'm sure you're taking the over too. I am. The spread is at 27. Clemson expected to win by 27 at home against Florida State this weekend. I'm taking it. I'm taking the over on it. Clemson is just that good. Florida State is just that bad. And then finally, top 25 matchups this weekend. Penn State going to Iowa. Penn State favored by four. The last time that Penn State went there, they won on the last offensive play of the game. Trace McSorley threw a touchdown to the back of the end zone on fourth down and goal. They won at Iowa. I tell you what, Iowa didn't look good offensively in Ann Arbor. They never looked good in Ann Arbor. But it happens so much that good teams go into Kinnick Stadium and they lose. Michigan did that a few years ago. Ohio State, we all know what happened back in, I think, 2017 it was. 55-24. to 24. Nobody up here was upset about that, though, Right. Kinnick is a tough place to play. I tell you what, Iowa may not be one of the more competitive teams every year. I know they're having a good year this year, but come on, man. It's Iowa. They're another team I don't trust is going to be there at the end of the year. But despite whatever team the Hawkeyes have, Kinnick is always one of the toughest places to play. It's always a hostile environment that will make you earn a road win. And for that reason, I'm going to take Iowa to upset Penn State this weekend. That is over under as we play here in the sports pen every Monday, right before we sign off. And speaking of which, it is five o'clock. It's time to get you out to Bush Stadium. We'll join Atlanta St. Louis in progress. But I appreciate you tuning in. I hope you enjoy the show as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. I'm back on tomorrow, same time and place. It's going to be an emotional show for me because either the twin season will have come to an end when I talk at you 24 hours from now, or I'm going to be right back in this spot facing elimination. Again tomorrow, we'll talk about it then. Sign it off from ESPN UP WZAM Ishpeming Marquette. I'm Tanner Hoops. Thanks for listening to ESPN UP.